So this morning is week two in our summer series, Readings in Mark. And this morning we will see how Jesus' announcement of the gospel of the kingdom is the basis for spiritual transformation. So this morning in this passage, we dive right into the heart of our work this summer of follow me with that, that big, bold question mark. And we hear in Christ this morning this very powerful authoritative call to follow him and get to witness the stunning and decisive responses to his call. And so what we want to do this morning is to help us look at that question mark and to take the implications of it serious and to just be alert to the notion that we are called to something. And I think we need this alertness because the daily world, the visible, felt world of our day bludgeons us with its things, with its noises and its events. It feels like it's pinching and pulling and constantly hammering away at our minds. But instead of shouting and shoving, the spiritual world whispers at us every so gently. God's not like a nagging parent He's not like a griping spouse or friend. Actually, he's rather easily explained away. He rarely responds with fire from heaven. He seems to just kind of go away meekly where he's not wanted and without protest. But one day he will enforce his will. But today... He cooperates with the desires of our heart and the inclinations that make up our present character and our will and our desires and our loves. It's as if he knows when he's not really wanted and not really loved. He just kind of says, okay, and goes away. But we see in this story this morning, if you want to look at your reading from Mark 1, that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming, the time is fulfilled. Now that's a very odd four words for the beginning of someone's career. You would think he would have come out, you know, guns blazing, you sinners, or hey, if you believe in me that I, you know, died on the cross and rose from the dead, that, you know, if you believe that, then you can go to heaven when you die. There's nothing like that. There's these odd words, the time is fulfilled. What does this mean? Well, it means that the long story of Israel is now at the beginning of its full completion. If you look at the psalm that we began with this morning, you see the notions of reigning. You see the notions of of a time coming when God would have his way. And Jesus bursts onto the public scene by saying, all that hope of of Israel, that whole historical hope from the calling of Abram And when God said to him, I'll make you into a great nation and I'll protect you and guide you and lead you and if anybody comes against you, I'll come against them so that you will be a blessing to the whole earth. So from the beginning of that promise in Genesis 12 through the patriarchs and just, you know, kind of just imagine this quickly, the patriarchs to the judges, kings, to prophets, to John the Baptist, And John the Baptist saying, he who comes after me, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. 
But he will baptize you with fire and by the Spirit and into the kingdom of God. And so when Jesus bursts on the scene, this is what he's saying. That these generations of anticipation from Abraham to John the Baptist is now finding its fulfillment precisely in him. That doesn't say follow it. It doesn't say follow an ideology. It doesn't say follow a doctrine. It doesn't say follow a system of doctrine. It doesn't say follow a world religion. It says, follow me. For I am, as Hebrews says, the exact representation of the Father. And so that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And if you see what I'm up to in the manner in which I live and my teaching and my deeds of power, then you see what the Father's up to. And so the question is, follow me. Well, why? What's, what's going on? And Jesus says, the kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. So first, the kingdom. What is the kingdom? Some of you have heard me say this before, but others of you won't. Kingdom simply translates a, a Greek term, basileia. In its uh, verb form, it means to rule or to reign. So the kingdom of God is the spaces and places in which he reigns. It's the expression not only of his like, sovereign authority, but it's the expression of his person. Right, like each of us as human beings created in the image of God, we each have like a queendom or a kingdom. Like any of you in this room could raise your right hand. Come on, do it with me just for the fun of it. Just raise your right hand. Thank you very much. How'd you do that? You just moved matter with your mind. Like how did you do that? Well, it's just simply an expression of your will. You willed it and you were able to bring it to pass. God too is a person who has a will, and he said, let there be light, and there was light. Now what if for God saying let there be light was as simple and straightforward as it was for you to just raise your right hand? And I would suggest that it is. And so what Jesus is saying here is that sovereign authority, the expression of God it's like Jesus is saying the living God is on the move. Everything you've hoped for from Abraham to John the Baptist, it's now finally happening. The living God is, is moving amongst us. And of course, that has implications for all aspects of our human life. And that as we give ourselves to this, our hearts are transformed. And as they're transformed, they're constantly enlarged and animated towards the least, the last, and the left out. So again, if you look at your text, Jesus says all this is at hand. And this is just a phrase that means something like this reality has come near. And that with a few simple arrangements, you can plug in to this whole new vast reality. So you might think of like a cell tower, how it enables phone calls. That, that's a reality that's unseen, but with a couple of arrangements, you can make your phone work. Or think of a modem or just think of the web itself, that this reality is there, you make a few, you make a few simple arrangements. You, you just do a few things that need to be done, and then you can plug into that, to that which is at hand. So now Jesus gives us a couple of hints about how to do that. The first is repent, and if you look at your text, the second is to believe. 
So what is repent? Repentance uh, translates the Greek term metanoia, or in the second person here, metanoete. And so noia is the basic Greek root word for thinking or cognition. Meta is a prefix here, means something like again or after. So to repent means to think again or have a second thought. It means that the preaching of the gospel is not mere content, but a summons, right? Like we can think about Jesus and do what's known in theology as Christology. That is to say, we can have theories about Jesus. Or we could do things like soteriology. We can have theories about salvation and how that works. But again, that's a very different thing. The preaching of the gospel includes content, of course. You can't have the announcement of something that doesn't have content, but the problem is it can't be reduced to mere contents. It's a summons. That's the point of the question mark. It really is an either-or confrontation of sorts. It came with this built-in demand for a definite, faithful response. Jesus is saying something like, stop what you're doing for a moment and question your worldview. Question your filters. And review all the aspects of your life haven't done that. Now, on the ground, at the time, you know, not in 2018 Southern California, but 2,000 years ago, ancient Palestine, the, re- the filters they were having to review were all built up over millennia of frustration. God said he was going to do this with Abraham, that they were going to be the cosmic first responders, and they were going to bring healing to God's broken creation. The story of Israel is, sadly, I say this with no judgment, certainly not an anti-Jewish thing, they became the arsonists. We now live in 2,000 years of supposing to be the answer, and we have our own problems. So that's why I say this is not a Jewish thing. This is like a, this is this whole story. And so in Jesus' day, there had grown up these traditions in Israel. They were very much like our political positions, like if you just think of liberal Democrats, conservative Republicans, maybe, you know, sort of libertarians in the middle or something. Jesus, when he talked to these crowds, he was talking to crowds of people who said, nope, what it means to be faithfully Jewish is to be a zealot. It means to sharpen your swords, pray your prayers, and engage in holy war. That's how we are going to bring God's will to pass. Others, like the Essenes, said, no, that's not the right way to do it. The right way to do it is to just remove yourself from culture. And so they went out and lived in the caves that we now think of as Qumran and the Qumran sect. Others were Herodians. And they said, nope, the best way to be Jewish, the best way to be faithful to God is to be political and to sort of keep Rome at bay by getting along with the the local powers, especially the powers that control the temple. And so that intersection of civil and religious authority that happened around the temple The Herodians said, that's the best way we can possibly bring the promises of God to pass. And Jesus breaks into that scene of utter frustration and total confusion and no agreement. They hated each other every bit as much as our political discourse today. And they hated the Samaritans and the Pharisees hated the Sadducees. And it's into that world of huge despair and huge confusion and an utter sense that none of this is working. Jesus breaks into that and says, review your worldview. Challenge your filters. Like, so what are yours? 
You know, the problem with the worldview is you don't see it. You just use it. If you don't actually stop to think, you will never actually become aware of your worldview. But you use it all day, every day. I use it all day, every day. And so if you've ever wondered, you know, like, well, where did the spiritual disciplines come for, come from? How did people like Ignatius of Loyola, you know, so commend the practicing of noticing? It's because if we don't take the time to notice that which, that which we think about life through all day, every day, it's just, we're gonna be used by it. And we're gonna be following it. And that's why the first word out of Jesus' mouth is once you see that God is in breaking into human life, the first thing to do is review your worldview. Think about your lenses. Technically, as I said, think about your thinking. Noya, your thinking. Think about your thinking. Think about what you believe to be true about God. Think about what you believe to be true about your neighbors. And review that. And then, secondly, Place your confidence in what I'm saying. Place your confidence in me. This is what believe means. It means act as if you believe it's true. Right? So at the, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, again, some of you have heard me say this before, you get to the end of that amazing teaching, and there's this last parable in which Jesus says, anybody who hears these words of mine and fails to put them into practice is like a foolish person whose life is built on the sand. But anybody who hears these words of mine, rethinking their thinking, and placing their confidence in this teaching and puts it into practice is like a wise person whose house is built on the rock. And so what Jesus is saying is, you Herodians, you're practicing your religious beliefs now. They lead you to hate Rome and they lead you to hate the Herodians, I'm sorry, the Zealots and the Qumran. You Qumran, you isolationists, you won't even be around the Herodians or the Zealots for fear you'll get cooties. You're living according to your beliefs now. See, again, Jesus looked at people who knew that they were living according to what they really believed, and so are you, and so am I. You may not be living up to your professions. You may not be living up to your oughts and shoulds. You may not be living sort of up to religious ideals, but you can't live in any other way than to live out of your honest beliefs. It's in, anything else is insanity. I mean, you literally would be clinically ill. We all live out of our beliefs. And Jesus is simply saying, review them. Think about them. Think about your beliefs and what they mean in light of the beginning and the end of God's purposes for humanity. So we get right to the heart of it with, as Jesus sees Simon and Andrew, and then later James, James and John, he says, come follow me. And I, I wish you all could see this in the, in the Greek text, because in the Greek text, it would look something like this. Hither, with an exclamation point. Hither, exclamation point. Behind me, exclamation point. That, that's what the Greek text would look like. Hither behind me. And so a real exclamation on hither, and a real exclamation on come behind me. Because in the, in the ancient world of Palestine here, people didn't walk together two by two the way we walk, you know how we walk side by side? Especially if you're talking about a, a rabbi and a mathetes, a, a student, an apprentice, they walked one behind the other. So there was an old saying in Jesus' day that the followers of the rabbi were covered in his dust. Can you feel that? 
So a little, little group of, little group of mathetes, a little group of students, a little group of apprentices following a rabbi. And because they walked behind him all day talking, and they were used to it. You know, that, that feels odd to us, right, to be talking to someone behind you or talking to somebody in front of you. But this, this was the only world they'd ever known. It was normal to them. And so they would literally end up covered in the rabbi's dust as they walked behind him. And so what's, what's asked for here in this hither, come behind me, I want you to hear the emphasis on me, become an apprentice of me, because that means breaking ties with all rival demands for your loyalty and following a leader master. Now, we don't have time, but if we were on like a weekend or week-long retreat, we could just pause here for a moment and we could, we could get out a piece of paper and we could just really be honest about the kinds of things in our life that demand our loyalty. From homeowners associations, to city councils, to workplace environments, to national politics, to international global economic systems, we are constantly badgered by calls to be loyal to something, by calls to like give our allegiance, even if it's just mental, like badgered to give our allegiance to certain you know, uh, political worldviews or religious worldviews or social worldviews, constantly badgered. And unless we take this sort of you know, here, here we see a very punctiliar moment in time where Jesus is saying, come follow me. But again, Ignatius and others helps us to practice that daily. To just notice what's real about me and notice without judgment that, yes, I feel myself being torn in this direction. You know, Lord, can we talk about that? <laughs> can, can we just, you know, deal with what's real here? So Jesus is saying that I'm forming a people who are going to announce and embody and demonstrate the coming of this kingdom. But that invitation to become the people of God gives rise to the question mark and gives rise to the question, but what do you want? I mean, you know these guys had to have thought, look, we're just fishermen. How are we supposed to teach educated Romans? How are we supposed to argue with sophisticated Egyptians? How can we ever get ancient people groups to give up their ancestral gods? You know they had to think, we just can't do that. Well, that makes sense if one assumes that Christianity is mostly content. These were unschooled, ordinary fishermen. But in James K. Smith's famous words, we're actually not brains on a stick that content is trying to be shoved into. We're actually desires, lovers, and what Jesus is calling for here is a, is a desire for him and what he's doing, that we become lovers of that. And it's from that that this great obedience flowed, such that the result 2,000 years later, because of these holy and powerful men and later women, they did it. These early women and men who followed Jesus began an ongoing revolution in the world. Yes, they were common, uneducated people. But Christianity isn't just about education. It's about things like they decided on their loyalties and left it all behind. They found nothing too dear to hang on to. They detached from goods and things. They detached from self-importance and youthless desire. They took the good things of life and they put it in proper order, things like parents and friends and our work and that sort of thing, such that they followed Jesus in such a way that they were actually better parents, better friends, better employees, better employees. Something like this, I think, Paul had in mind when he said, Romans 6, 14, may I never boast 
except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's the kind of loyalty that Jesus is calling for, or the way the message has it. Because of the cross, I've been crucified in relation to the world, set free from the stifling atmosphere of pleasing others, and fitting into the little patterns that they dictate. That's brilliant. Or the Living Bible has it, because of the cross, my interest in all the attractive things of the world was killed long ago. Well, a number of years ago, I can't remember how many years ago, likely 20 years ago or something, the navigators, you know, the navigator, um, you know, the the publishers and the the campus group, they were hosting a, a think tank called Theological and Cultural Thinkers or something, and I was on this little working group with Dallas Willard trying to come up with a definition of evangelism, trying to come up with a definition of what would it mean to articulate following Jesus, and this is what the group came up with. Spiritual transformation into Christ-likeness requires a conscious, clear-headed, and public commitment to living as a disciple of Jesus Christ. That is to a decision to give our lives to him as his constant students, learning from him how to live all aspects of our lives as he would live them. Evangelism should be understood as a call to receive the gift of such a life. Now, I want to help you think about this a bit imaginably this morning, and this unfortunately doesn't project very well, but it's the best we can do in this room in this light. But recently, I, I saw a, a, a comment from Richard Rohr on Rublev's The Trinity, and Richard was saying, if we can put those up, Richard was saying in this little article I'd seen that as icons do, this painting attempts to point beyond itself and you know, kind of invite us into both a beyond and a communion that exists in our midst. And Rohr notices the three primary colors uh, in each of the figures. And this is what's known as the Trinity or Abraham's hospitality. And for Rohr, at least, he sees that each of these colors illustrating a facet of the Trinity that with the Father, the gold, signifying a kind of perfection and fullness, wholeness, kind of ultimate source, maybe. And you see a gaze at the sun. And in the, in the incarnate sun gazing back in blue, you see hence maybe the color of creation. The kind of brilliantly undergird, but it's brilliantly undergirded with the necessity of the red of suffering. And in the green on the spirit in the right, Roar and other art scholars have seen like the divine power for life-giving, or it's kind of like the greening of all things, the, the lifing of all things. And you might notice that the Spirit's hand points towards an open place at the table as if maybe to be inviting or offering or clearing space. Well, you probably wouldn't have noticed it, but if you look at this second slide and look closely, at the front of the table, there appears to be a little rectangle hole. And art historians aren't agreed about this, but many of them believe that there, that there's a, well, there is a remaining bit of glue on the original icon that may indicate that there was perhaps a mirror glued to the front of the table, signifying that there was room at the table of relational and missional love, that there was room there for a fourth. There was room for an observer, for you, for me, to be standing before this icon and seeing yourself in the midst of the Trinity. 
And the idea is that at this table, we'd come to find and define and live our lives in both personal and missional love, such that our transformation into Christ-likeness would lead to a life of free-hearted collaboration with Jesus and the kingdom of God, intelligently lived from a hither after me. Conversational walk with God. I think finding your life there, finding its meaning, its purpose, its orientation, its telos, its completion, will naturally break the power of every other loyalty. And it will free us to a hither after me. I think that's the divine ideal for human life and the constant invitation that stands before us. Come. Come.